Would you join me in finding the book of Joshua, chapter 6, verse 3, Joshua 6, 3. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at those events that immediately precede the most well-known story in this book, the mighty fall of Jericho. This morning, we're about to get there. In fact, by the time we leave, the walls will be down. But before the walls fall, the Lord gives Joshua the plan, the precise plan for how those mighty walls will be flattened. And so we begin this morning reading the details in verse 3. These are details about the taking the land, that the Lord gave this land to Abraham. And now many, many years later, they are about to literally take possession of it. But they get there and they discover that there's this tribe of people or peoples called the Canaanites. And they are all over the land and they live in cities like Jericho and they must be defeated before the land will be in the possession of Israel. And so as they begin to march toward Jericho. They remember the Lord's promise. You remember in chapter 6, verse 2, the Lord gave Joshua a promise that would guide him and encourage him every step of the way. The Lord said to Joshua, I, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. So whatever happens next will be, will be because the Lord said it would happen. It is the Lord who speaks. It is the Lord who gives Joshua and the people a wonderful promise. This is now the foundation of their hope. Without this word from the Lord, in verse 2, without a clear and definitive message of victory from God Almighty, there will be nothing to guide them. There will be nothing to believe in. There will be nothing to fight for. No, no reason to anticipate victory. So at this moment, before they go against Jericho, they have to decide Will they stand on the word of the Lord? Will they believe the promises? Even before we read the battle plan, we can see an immediate connection to you and me here today so many years after the fall of Jericho. We can remember what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter have said about the word of God and about the promises of the Lord. It is the Apostle Peter who sounds such a beautiful note when he says to us in the second epistle that bears his name, that Almighty God, like he did to Joshua, Almighty God has granted to the church everything pertaining to life and godliness. And among those things that he's granted to us, Peter says, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And so we too, like Joshua and his generation are recipients of the Word of God. Without the Word, without the promises, we have nothing. And so it was for the people of Jericho's day. And so we come to chapter 6, verse 3 through verse 9, and we read the plan for battle, and here's how it goes. The Lord says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once, and thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. 
when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests, and he said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. And there is the plan for the fall of Jericho. The Lord's sovereign and detailed instructions for the breaching of Jericho's defenses. But as we sit here and read this word this morning, it surely looks and sounds like a strange, awkward plan. A plan for battle. A plan that in its simplest terms involves marching around in circle after circle for six days and then on the seventh day walking around seven times and blowing lots of horns and then shouting. And they're to do so in a specific order. Seven priests, seven trumpets of ram's horn walking before the ark of the Lord and on the seventh day they're to march around the city seven times and then there's this long blast of the trumpet. And then the people shout with a great shout, and the Lord says those impenetrable, wide, and tall walls of Jericho will fall down flat, and then every person is to run up and take the city. And there you have it. That's the plan. That's how the city of Jericho will be conquered. Look at some of the details of this very strange plan. There's the ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord is central in the strategy. Of course, the ark was the movable temple, the, the portable structure where the Lord God Almighty would dwell among his people. And that's exactly why the ark is there in this, in this battle. The ark represents the fact that the Lord himself will, will go with them. He's, he's in the middle of the fight with them. He is there with them walking into Jericho like he was there with them in the wilderness, like he was there with them in the heart of the Red Sea, like he was there when the Jordan was parted and they walked over on dry land. Again, the covenant God will fight for his people. He will bring down the walls of Jericho. The ark is the ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord's presence. And then the trumpets. This battle plan involves not only the ark, but also Trumpets. Trumpets. Why? Horns. Clearly, the trumpets, the sounding of the horns, horns indicates that the Lord is about to act. And when we read the Bible, we, we see how central a thought this is, that when the Lord sounds his trumpets, something is about to happen. Something big, something uh, huge is about to happen. Listen to Joel. Listen to the prophet Amos, who make this point so well. Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion. 
Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. That's what the trumpet symbolized. The day of the Lord was dawning for Jericho. And then the prophet Amos. Is a trumpet blown in the city, he asks, and the people not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The sounding of the trumpet indicated that the Lord was about to bring disaster on his enemies. Something big was about to happen. He was about to judge them. He had saved his people, and now he was judging the enemies of his people. And we think about what our Lord Jesus said. Some of you right now, maybe you're thinking about the words of Jesus, those words in red in Matthew 24 where Jesus spoke of a trumpet. Jesus is bringing the disciples up to speed on how time will end, how the coming kingdom will be revealed. He is describing the last things, and he says this, and he, the Lord, when the Lord comes, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And the angels will gather his elect from the four winds. And they will come together and be with their Lord. And and judgment will fall on all mankind. The trumpet will sound. Because God is doing something big. And then you think about the Apostle Paul. Looking back through the words of Jesus. Looking back as it were all the way to Jericho. And the Apostle Paul speaking of the day that Jesus comes. Thinking and speaking of judgment day. Says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout. With the voice of the archangel. And the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are alive and remain until the coming hour of the Lord. Will be caught up together with them, with him in the clouds, and so shall they ever be. The trumpet is sounded so that all the inhabitants of Jericho would know that the sovereign Lord of all the earth had arrived. He was coming to their city, and he was bringing judgment upon the enemies of those he loves. But why the marching Why the encircling of the city over and over again? Do you remember in chapter number 4, there's this interesting notation that the Israelites had assembled an army of 40,000 men ready for war. Now, they were not a fighting people. But they created this ad hoc army of 40,000 men willing to fight. They were there. They were ready. Why not send in 40,000 men armed? But they are not sent in. No, the people are, are in a procession, the army with them, and they are to march in a circle, not attack the walls. Why the marching? Well, first, this was the Lord's war. It was the Lord's fight. He had a plan. He had a, 
a strategy that must be carried out to the letter. No, no questions and no, no compromises. This is the Lord's war. Do you remember the conversation that Joshua had in chapter 5 with that strange man, the commander of the Lord's army, the one we identified as, as the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus himself? Do you remember the conversation? When this man suddenly appeared to Joshua, Joshua didn't know who he was. And Joshua raises the obvious question. He turns to this man who was our Lord Christ. And he asked him, are you for us or are you for the enemy? And do you remember what the Lord said? He said, no. (laughs) No. Meaning, I'm not on your side and I'm not on their side. I'm on my side. I'm on my side. And there, as he gets ready to lead the people to fight, Joshua learns the most important lesson, that the Lord is on his own side. Think about that. How often do we make a plan, and then we ask the Lord to bless what we've chosen to do? Maybe Joshua was tempted to do that. Maybe that's a universal temptation. To ask the Lord to join our side, to join up with our cause so that we can accomplish our purpose and our agenda. And then the Lord would be our assistant. How often do we want the Lord to be our assistant, our helper? But here, as they're about to go forward into Jericho, the Lord is not going to be anybody's assistant. Joshua must choose to be on the Lord's side. It is the Lord's war. It will be fought the way the Lord has determined it would be fought. It would be fought as the way outlined in the words of the commander of the Lord's hosts. They will march. and They will sound the trumpet. And they will obey. It is the Lord's battle for sure. But there's another reason this battle plan looks so strange, so weird, honestly. Not only because it's the Lord's war, and that's what he wants, but because this way will ensure that the Lord gets the glory for whatever happens next. It is a seemingly useless plan. It is a plan that confounds all earthly wisdom and all earthly power. It violates every convention of war. It conforms to no time-tested strategy for battle. It leaves no room for any man to do anything except march. When those walls do fall flat, no one is going to look back and say, what a powerful people those Israelites are. No one will say that because they don't do anything but march. No one will say, look how clever the Israelites are. Look at their strategy. Look at their battlefield expertise. Look how how intelligent their plan was. No one will be tempted to say that at all. All they will say is, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And Israel's enemies who are watching this, who are going to be scoffing at them, I'm sure, as they begin to march, the inhabitants of Jericho are, are amused by that. This is how they're going to take over? And they began to laugh and to 
to make fun of them. But when those walls fell, even those inhabitants of Jericho would have to say, the Lord God Almighty reigns. That's why the plan is so strange. And this is how this story immediately connects to you and me here today. Who gets the credit for our salvation? Who gets that? As we read this story, even before the walls fall down flat, we're challenged to remember that when it comes to our salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ, all the glory and all the honor and praise goes to Him. And I would suggest to you that the way the Lord has chosen to redeem us from our sins also appears very strange and very silly to those outside the grace of God. Think about how strange the sound of the gospel must be as it falls on the ears of those who don't believe. Think about how God's plan to redeem you and me seems so apparently weak and useless and silly and should be rejected out of hand. It's a story of salvation that leaves us out of the equation as far as our contribution to it. For we contribute nothing to the achieving of our salvation. Not one thing. Not one thing. Not one fraction. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves from God's justified wrath, from His just anger from the wages of sin, which according to Scripture is death. We have a problem with God. We have a problem with ourselves. We can't correct it or fix it. We are truly helpless and and hopeless. We have no way to deal with our sins. And Israel is getting a tremendous illustration of that as they do nothing to bring down the walls of Jericho. Except trust God. Except stand on the promise that I will bring the walls down for you. And think about how weak, how full of foolishness the gospel is to those who don't believe. How silly to think that a crucified king could save us. How silly to think that a man who dies upon a cross, a most shameful death, would in some way atone for the sins of the world. The death of Christ to those outside God's grace is useless. It is a waste. It is unnecessary. The Apostle Paul would say, surely... The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, he says, it is the power of God. A long time ago, the Lord chose to be glorified by the apparent weakness of bringing down the walls of Jericho by having his covenant people walk around in a big circle. Just as at Mount Calvary, He was pleased to save those who believe by having his only perfect beloved son crucified like a criminal and placed in a tomb that he could not even afford and raising him from the dead 
on the third day. Yes, it is foolish, but it is God's plan. And it is so weak and so foolish that when it accomplishes God's purposes, it brings glory only to him. You see, the Lord is having Israel do it this way because he will not share his glory with anybody. He will not let us boast in anything but him. If we belong to the Lord, we can't boast about anything, whatever it may be, and certainly not our own salvation. So the Lord does it this way to remove any cause for boasting. His people are saved and delivered, but they are also humble. There is no boasting but in his mercy. But there's more strange stuff going on here. Look at verse 10 and 11. This odd plan gets a little odder. (laughs) But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. And then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now, something even more perplexing about this plan. Joshua, Joshua, the one who now, now is in the place of Moses, he's the one in charge in terms of the, the earthly leadership of God's people. He's in charge. And he says, now look, folks, you can't say a word. It is very direct. He says, you shall not shout, you shall not make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until I tell you to open it. And that's pretty clear. And so for six days, they go around the city once each day, and the only sound is that of their marching feet and the blowing of the trumpets. But there's no word spoken from their lips. They do so in silence. They march around Jericho. There is no comment. There is no question. There is no discussion. There is no word, period. There is only marching and trusting and waiting. Waiting. What a strange thing to command. And as I look at this, I've got two questions. Why the silent treatment? Why the command to be quiet? And then why the delay? Why six times around, once each day? And then you have to go to day seven, and then you have to go around seven times before anything happens. Why the command for silence, and why the delay? Why not just go take it over? You know, why not just get it done and over with? Let's just go beat these people. Why the delay? Well, the answer may not be explicit here, but the answer is explicit in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, the inspired author looks back to this very event, and listen to what he says in Hebrews 11.30, and this explains it all. He says, and listen carefully, by faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It is about faith. The walls will fall, but only after 
Only after they had been encircled for seven days and encircled in silence. In this time of marching and being quiet and waiting, faith was grown in their hearts. Faith. Oh, we need to see that the Lord God grants his people faith. He did it in the Old Testament. He does it in the New. Anyone who believes upon Christ believes upon Christ because God has given them faith. He gives us the gift of faith, but he also strengthens faith. He also nourishes faith. He also causes faith to grow and mature and get stronger. And that's what the Lord is doing for his people. That's why there's not an immediate attack. That's why there's not an immediate fall of the walls. That's why the silent treatment, and that's why the walls. You see, the building of faith normally includes the closing of our mouths and the waiting on the Lord. Closing our mouths and waiting on the Lord, and trusting that His Word that He spoke is true. That notion of waiting on the Lord is not a subtle thing in the Word of God. And I would even say it's one of the central things about the covenant people, one of the central duties of the covenant people to wait, to wait on the Lord. Long before the Israelites came to Jericho, there was a man named Jacob, and Jacob declared to his sons one day, in their hearing, he declared, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And God's people who came from the line of Jacob have been waiting on the Lord ever since. Because in the waiting and in the silence, faith grows. Nowhere is this central duty of waiting on the Lord more more powerfully expressed than in the words of the psalmist. King David. King David writes, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait. Wait for the Lord. Again, he says, for the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Could it be that David is looking back and he is saying, like ancient Israel had to do, wait for the Lord. Those evildoers will be cut off, and those who wait will inherit the land. And again, Psalm 37, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look and see that the wicked are cut off. Again, Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence, David says. From him comes my salvation. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. As they're marching in silence, they are remembering what he said. I have given Jericho into your hand. And faith, faith is building. 
And like those ancient Israelites, we too must learn to wait before the Lord. God will not always act according to our clock or our calendar. He is much more interested in building our faith than he is in making us comfortable. Thank him. Praise his name for that. He is much more interested in building and maturing and growing our faith than he is in serving our schedule. He wants our faith to be real, to be deep, to be mature. And if that's going to happen, then our waiting, like that commanded of Israel, must be in silence. We must wait without questioning. We must wait without grumbling. We must wait without complaining. I I have no doubt in my mind that when Joshua heard from the Lord the command to give to the people that they must be quiet, he is remembering. He is remembering what the previous generation of Israelites had just done. What did they do? Every time Moses turned around, what were they doing? They were complaining, they were running their mouths. They were grumbling. Exodus 15, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink now? You brought us out into the wilderness. What are we going to drink, Moses? Exodus 16, the people say, oh, I wish we had died in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we could sit by the Nile with our hamburgers our pots of meat, and our onions. At least we had three squares guaranteed under Pharaoh. And these are people who had just crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And now they are complaining because they're thirsty and they're hungry. And Numbers 11, the story continues, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about all their misfortunes. Woe is me, it's so bad. Do you see why the Lord is commanding the Israelites now, the second generation of Israelites, to be quiet? Because complaining and questioning and grumbling against the Lord signals a lack of faith. Anybody can complain that the Lord doesn't seem to be answering our prayers, that things haven't turned out like we signed up for, that it's hard, that it's painful. Anybody can do that. But faith waits in silence before the Lord who has promised a better day one day. Grumbling would have been disastrous for the mission. Grumbling quenches the faith of other people. Had they been talking as they were walking, can you imagine some of the conversations? Can you believe that we're having to waste our time Can you believe how dumb this is? It's hot out here. I'm messing up my new shoes. The bugs are awful. I'm tired of those residents of Jericho calling me names. I want to go home to my mommy. And the faith of others is quenched. And the community is divided. Had they been marching and talking and complaining... And criticizing the battle plan, the community would have been fragmented. And there would have been nobody there to inherit the land. And so the Lord says, a mark of faith 
is to wait. And to wait in faith. And to wait in the silent trust that God in his own time, in his own way, will deliver exactly what he has promised. He has never been late. He wasn't then and he will not be now. Waiting is where faith grows. Well, soon it was time to act. Verse 12, notice the prompt obedience. This is where the story gets very good. The people do exactly what the Lord commands them to do. Chapter 6, verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning. Now, you can, you can read that, and you can almost imagine Joshua with obedience beating in his heart. He jumps out of bed early. And the priests, they, they get up early and they, they take up the ark of the Lord. And then those, those seven priests, they, they take the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord and they walk. And they blew on the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord. And the trumpets are blowing continually. They're doing exactly as the Lord commanded them to do. And on the second day they did it. And they did it again and again and again for six days. And then on the seventh day they rose early again eager to do the will of the Lord. And they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Seven times. And so true faith not only waits in silence, but faith obeys. Faith sticks with the Lord's plan. And isn't that the way it is? Faith without works is dead. There was a time to move. Here is that old covenant illustration of the fact that when the Lord commands, His people must respond. He has saved them. He has deposited within them His very presence, His Spirit. He has given them the promise of victory one day. And when He says march, it is time to march. And when they obey, things happen. So faith always obeys. Faith in Christ obeys. Faith listens for the voice of the commander. Faith in Christ walks according to the written word of God. Any alleged faith in Christ that does not treasure the word and does not obey the word is no real faith at all. And so they believe and they march. And then here's what happens, this lengthy paragraph beginning in verse 16. Let me just read the whole thing. Chapter 6, verse 16 through verse 22. At the seventh time when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, <laughs> shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now, we'll come back next Lord's Day and talk about all this. We're not going to finish this morning. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, Israelites, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction lest when you've devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. That is, 
God is going to destroy his enemies, but if his own people disobey, he'll destroy them too. Verse 19, but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. In verse 20, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And look at what happens. The wall fell down flat. And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. They then devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. The Lord fought for his people. All his people did was believe him. They obeyed. They didn't bring the walls down. They didn't exert their intelligence or their strategy or their muscle. They simply believed the word of the Lord. And when they believed the word of the Lord, what happened? The walls literally fell down flat. Now, this is a miracle. This is not a well-timed earthquake. This is the sovereign Lord of the universe at a precise moment in time without anybody's help bringing down the walls, flattening them. Every structure flattened. The only people saved that day were Rahab and her family. But the Lord brought judgment day to the inhabitants of that city, a divine act of judgment and salvation for his people. And all his people did was believe him and trust him and wait. And when he said march, they marched. And when he said conquer, they conquered. They were standing on the promises of God And that is the way the walls fell. They fell by faith in Christ. Faith in the commander of the Lord's army. And when we believe, walls fall. A miracle occurs. A greater miracle than the tumbling walls of Jericho. We are reconciled to God. We are raised to walk in newness of life. Isn't that something? When they believed in the Lord, those walls fell and the inhabitants died. When we believe in that same Lord, we rise from our death as a mighty army, the people of the commander of the Lord's army resurrected from our spiritual death, never to die again, graced with eternal life, now soldiers in his army. Will we walk by faith? Will we walk humbly? Will we walk obediently? If we do, the Lord, the Lord we serve, will be forever glorified. Amen. Praise his name.